welcome to Buddhism for Beginners, a podcast on foundational Buddhist teachings and techniques to use in your everyday life. This podcast is a production of Kunzang Payal Choling, a Buddhist center in the Payal lineage of the Nyingma School of Tibetan Buddhism. For more teachings, meditations, and resources, you can visit our online virtual temple at tara.org. That's T-A-R-A dot org. How does one fight desire in our minds? In this teaching, Jetsama Akon Lamo teaches the way of the compassionate warrior. If we have some desire or greed within our minds, we think of battling it by trying to gain insight into it. That's the first thing that we do. We try to gain insight into it. And of course, According to the Buddhist teaching, while that may be the fashionable way to handle it at this time, during, during these, uh, this time in our, in our uh, collective evolution, according to the Buddhist teaching, that is not necessarily the way. To understand how, for instance, desire or greed arises within our mind stream is almost impossible. Because according to the Buddhist teaching, Desire and greed, and in fact all of the poisons arise within our mind stream due to habitual tendency. Habitual tendency that we have been engaged in since time out of mind. It is our habit to feel desire. Not only for the past, say, hundred years, which is the very most any of us could have felt desire, since none of us can be that old or older than that, But before this lifetime, during uncountable aeons of incarnation and experience during that incarnation, we have engaged in desire. We have engaged in greed. In fact, the teaching is that it is desire that causes us to be reborn in any form. That actually as we travel through the bardo, it is desire that causes us to take rebirth in cyclic existence. So we have such a strong, actually compulsive relationship with desire. And it is a deep and long-standing habitual tendency. So if we try to understand how some form of desire arises within our mind stream, let's say we desire lots of money and we wish to combat that. Or let's say we desire um, some uh, particular person to have a romantic relationship and we we wish to to eradicate that desire from our mind streams or whatever our particular pattern is that we wish to overcome if we try to trace that desire back to one object thinking that it's really a car that we want or really a person that we want or really some approval that we want or really some love that we want we won't understand we will completely lose sight of the real problem Because tracing desire back to one person is only the tiniest drop in the whole picture. It really has no bearing. Really the problem is that we have this incredible habitual pattern, habitual tendency that we've worked on very hard. 
for aeons and aeons and aeons. It is a strong habit pattern so tightly knit as to be completely inseparable from our mind streams. It is the very pattern and fabric of our mind stream at this time. It is, of course, not our nature. Our nature is not a desirous nature. Our nature is the Buddha nature, pure, pristine, uncontrived, spacious, luminous, and free, free of conceptualization. But the pattern and fabric of our continuum experience is a continuous exaggeration of desire, a continuous habitual pattern. And that habitual pattern forms in certain habitual ways, and it seems to take on certain shapes and colors and sounds and smells, and we call that our personality. And we think, oh, that's me. That's how I am. So if we wish to apply the antidote to desire, we do ourselves a grave disservice by trying to nail down one particular thing about which we are desirous. Or one particular person toward whom we feel desire. We do ourselves a great dis disservice because it's like trying to empty out the ocean with a teaspoon. It will never happen. Or if we try to get the object of our desire, think about that. If we try to get the object, can you get the object of your desire? Can you do that? Let's say you have extreme desire for one person. Supposing you were able to win that person's complete love and to be with that person until you die. Suppose that were possible. Supposing within that relationship everything was satisfactory. All of the emotional components, all of the psychological components, all of the physical components, let's say they were all completely satisfactory. Can you really win that person? Can you really have the object of your desire? Can you secure it? Can you nail it down? Never. Never in a million years. Never ever. And the reason why you can never nail that down is because eventually one of you will die. And at that point, the suffering of suffering begins, the suffering of loss, which is one of the sufferings. And the, the, the backhand of that, the trick side of that, is that the more satisfying, the more beautiful, the more nourishing and satisfactory in every way the relationship is, the more you will miss it when you lose it. The more you will remember it later, the more you will grieve. So it doesn't mean that you should feel hopeless in the sense that there is no happiness, but you should understand what happiness is. And understanding what happiness is, we can finally take up weapons against desire. Because we should understand that one cannot actually secure the object of one's desire, and if one can do so, it's only temporary. That there is no relief from that particular desire other than to eradicate all desire but that is the relief that is the end of it the Buddha teaches us that there is a cessation to suffering and that cessation is called enlightenment period the cessation of suffering was never taught 
as being possible through obtaining all the things that you suffer for or any of the things that you suffer for. But there is a cessation of suffering and you should not feel hopeless. That cessation of suffering is called enlightenment. In enlightenment, we have taken up weapons against desire. We have liberated ourselves from desire. We have awakened to the primordial natural state, the naturally wakeful and yet completely uncontrived luminous state, which is our true nature. And in that state, since there is no contrivance, since there is no specific fixation, since that state is pure in its natural luminosity, there is no desire. There is no object of desire. There is no subject to feel desire. One simply awakens to the natural luminous state. And so that is the cessation of suffering because there are not any building blocks with which to make up suffering. <clears throat> One is simply naturally, spontaneously, completely and freely awake in the natural state. And so suffering does not exist. We have difficulty understanding this, however, because still and all, when it comes down to the point that we feel some intense suffering, we try to manipulate our environment in order to change that. Kind of like coming within the close proximity of some fire, we jerk our hands away. Rather than solving the total problem, we simply look for immediate relief. Simply immediate relief. If we have some strong craving, we do try to satisfy, satisfy that craving immediately. We don't take the long-term remedy. And of course, the long-term remedy is the one that ultimately satisfies. But that's not what we do. We try to satisfy ourselves in a short way. The difficulty about satisfying ourselves in a short way is that it often increases the, or exaggerates the problem. You don't ultimately solve it. Let's say one has strong desire for a particular person and that relationship is somehow unhealthy or inappropriate. One cannot actually <clears throat> take up that relationship and try to secure that relationship and try to really nail it down and hope to solve the problem. Because even if the desire is satisfied temporarily, there is the point of death that has to be dealt with. And the tricky part of that, the really tricky part of that, is that in satisfying that desire, it is never pacified. It is simply maintained within the mind stream. No renunciation is practiced. There is no real cessation to the problem. If, on the other hand, one were to practice renunciation in some strong and really firm way, then one could actually go after the source of that suffering. It isn't to say that one need practice it in such a way as to completely give up relationships. There are lots of lay people, that is, people that are not ordained and therefore not celibate, that achieve the auspicious result of enlightenment. But one would go after the poison of desire within the mind stream in such a way as to really achieve result 
to get at the heart of the problem and from the depth of one's depth of one's being to go after hatred greed and ignorance through one's practice through dedicating one's life to practice through dedicating one's life to awakening to the primordial wisdom nature and not letting any other goal get in the way to becoming as the children are becoming a warrior in a sense with strong and affirmative action leading only to the optimal result optimum result of enlightenment the difference between dharma and perhaps another form of meditation or spirituality is that the, the dharma actually teaches us the antidote to these root sufferings the buddha taught us that there are certain specific antidotes that one should practice now often when we engage in spiritual activity we think that what we should do is to adapt a spiritual demeanor so we run around acting like spiritual people have you seen yourself perhaps act as a spiritual person when you feel like it ought to be a spiritual day have you seen other people act like spiritual people maybe they sit on rocks and meditate maybe they roll their eyes ever skyward maybe they carry themselves in a very haughty and proud way in my mind there is nothing more obnoxious than a person trying to act spiritual really isn't that a harsh thing to say but there's nothing more obnoxious than that because it's like a little kid in a sense putting on the daddy's clothes it really doesn't fit him and the cut's bad you know and i'm really into fashion you see <laughs> it just doesn't work doesn't match in general it's pretty obnoxious the buddha teaches us instead that it really is probably an increase to one's suffering an increase to one's pridefulness to act in that way to act in a very spiritual holy way in fact one of the young men that uh, that didn't have any costume on at all had a very good point why stick out why make a big deal just do it he had a very good point that was how he saw being a warrior <clears throat> from our point of view we must understand that instead of adapting a spiritual meaner demeanor the main point of one's practice should be actually to apply the antidote and of course there's nothing glamorous about applying the antidote it's not even necessarily fun in fact most of the time i can guarantee you that it's not fun for instance if one realizes that one has a tremendous amount of desire one could then practice renunciation on a very deep level one needs to examine cyclic existence for what it is to examine it for what it is is not fun because you have to see through the luster of all of the things that you play with and you play with a lot of things you don't realize that you play with your material goods of course that's the most obvious you play with the place that you live and the people that you're with all of them you juggle in the air and they make you feel good but you have to see through the luster of that you have to see that in fact it seems to be glamorous or it seems to be satisfying but ultimately will not be 
If the problem is not solved, none of these things will last forever. They're all impermanent. And none of them can really be nailed down. You can't, even if you think that you're nailing something down to where you are going to have it from now until the time that you die, that's not possible. We've experienced death, we've experienced divorce, we've experienced material loss, we've experienced sickness, we've experienced old age. We've experienced everything, everything there is to suffer from, over and over again. Surely we can see that by now. We get to the point where cyclic existence has to actually lose its appeal. It has to lose its luster. Unfortunately, it seems that the only way we human beings learn that, the only way we actually see it with our own eyes lose its luster, is to get a good swift kick in the seat of our pants. We learn that samsara or cyclic existence loses its luster when we see death, when we see friends betray us, when we see lovers leave us, or when we have to leave them, when we see material goods rust, rot, break down, when we lose money, when things get taken from us, when ideals that we construct within our mind turn out to be pure fabrication. And even our intellectual premise that we construct so carefully and with such loving care, such, such high regards, such great respect, even these change from day to day, week to week, month to month, and year to year. Do you remember when you were 18 and arrogant beyond belief? And how you knew, as I tease my son about 10 whole facts about the world, and therefore have become completely omniscient? And how from that time till the time that you were maybe 30, you spent all of those years finding out how completely ignorant you are? <laughs> of course that's happened to all of us. And it continues as we get older. So everything that we have, everything that we construct, everything that we build up, falls apart seeing that for what it is examining how lusterless cyclic existence actually is we can begin at least and at last to apply the antidote and let's say we have a strong affinity with craving let's say that desire is such a very strong poison for us we can begin to apply the antidote by in a sense taking the inner posture of leaving the party just leaving it, turning our back on it. And it begins with an inner posture. How you express it outwardly is your business. No one can tell you whether or not you should take up robes or whether you should stay as a layperson and appear just like everyone else, unchanged. Only you know that because you know whether you need the outward form. Some people, in honesty, know that they need the outward form. They need the structure. They need their robes as protection. Their robes are protection. It helps in their mindfulness. causes them to remain firm. Keeps them in good working order. I have great respect for that method. But then other people don't feel an affinity with the robes. They feel like their method is to take an inner posture of renunciation. Like the guy with no costume, the young, young man with no costume, to be an invisible bodhisattva, 
to do your job looking like other people because you look like other people. You can do your job better. Like that. But you have to be honest with yourself and really know what you're capable of. What are you capable of? What can you really do best? For some people, the ropes might be a poison, in a sense. It might be a very prideful thing for them, a thing in which to take great pride. But for other people, they might be a great blessing. And for some people, it might be a very prideful posture that keeps them as lay people because they want to remain somewhat ordinary and attractive and, and amenable and, and, and they don't wish to take any any hard times or hard words or harsh looks from anyone else. And they have commitments that they feel that they must continue to keep. And perhaps not taking robes would be a poison for them. It's individual and each of us has to know, but what we have to know is that in whatever way we choose, we must apply the antidote. That's the trick. The trick is applying the antidote and it has to be a very sincere, very genuine effort. <clears throat> the Buddha lays out many different situations that we can actually learn from. For instance, the Buddha teaches us that if we are very beautiful, very attractive, or very charismatic in some way, that probably in the past we have been very faithful and very loyal to what we believe in and to those in whom we have to whom we have pledged loyalty that that is how one achieves beauty which was a real revelation to me because I really thought it was Estee Lauder but that was really going to do it and I found out that in fact no that is not the case it is not Estee Lauder it has nothing to do with it which, uh, which is, is, is difficult because I would actually rather pay money than work very hard you see of course that's true of all of us isn't that true? Wouldn't we rather do that? Buy something, pay $20 for something, and then you've got it nailed. The rest of your life you're beautiful, but it's not like that. What you have to do is to practice fidelity, loyalty. Be able to keep your commitments, purity in that sense. The commitments of your heart, the inner samayas. This practice is a yoga of the body to keep inner commitments, to keep practices with your, with, your, with your body, to stay there and be steadfast, to remain firm, it brings about a beauty. And that is how you practice. That is how, it, that is how your body becomes purified through the practice of that kind of yoga. When we practice meditational deities in their enlightened form, we think of them as being intoxicatingly attractive. And is it because we wish to lust after them? Is it because we wish to think of them in a desirous way? No, they are intoxicatingly attractive because of their, of their fidelity. Because of their complete inseparability with all that is true and beautiful, with the nature itself. Because they have practiced a yoga of body. And their very bodies are like the display of the enlightened qualities. Furthermore, we are taught that if we 
are not attractive, not beautiful, and not charismatic, and people don't seem to be attracted to the way that we look. That in the past we have been untruthful somehow with our bodies. We have been untrue, not been able to keep our commitments. And the way to remedy that lack of beauty is not not by heading out to the nearest beauty expert, but instead the way to practice that is by remaining true, by cultivating pure yoga with one's body. Using the body in a pure way, keeping one's commitments, remaining steadfast, being loyal, being dependable. And we are actually taught that particularly that is so within the context of relationships. We don't think that, we think that we only have to think of these things in spiritual um, areas, but even in the sense of ordinary relationships, these things come into play. Now, how about poverty? When we think about poverty, well, the first thing we do when we think about being poor is we bemoan our, our situation. We wail and gnash our teeth and think about how poor we are. And then we try to get some help, try to get some money somehow. Some people try to work, <clears throat> or some people try to borrow, some people try to steal. Some people try to satisfy, in some way, their poverty. And of course, that is an immediate method, and sometimes it will work temporarily. Getting a job might work temporarily. Stealing might work temporarily. But ultimately, it won't work. We have to look at the real cause for poverty. And the real cause for poverty is a lack of generosity in the past. That in the past, others around you have suffered due to poverty, and you have not helped them. A lack of generosity actually brings about poverty. So what do you think the true antidote to poverty might be? Of course, the true antidote to poverty then would be generosity. It would be seeing to the welfare of others, being generous in some regard. I never recommend idiot generosity, which is to help others to remain poor by supplementing them. But in some intelligent and thoughtful way to increase the well-being of others through teaching them how to take care of themselves, through giving them money when necessary, through acting in some way, through generosity, to see to the welfare of others. If you know someone is hungry, you should feed them. If you know someone is needy, you should try to help them in some way. That generosity is a practice It is a yoga. And in the future, you will return in some form that lives in grandeur and opulence, surrounded by opulence. And furthermore, you will be able to enjoy it. Some people are rich and they are completely unable to enjoy it. They have no sense of their wealth. They live in a very poor way, a very meager way. The wealth doesn't touch them. And that's a kind of internal poverty. Of course, what would the cause of that be? Probably the cause of that would be that in the past you did not wish for the well-being of others. You did not wish that others would be happy and and, and, uh, sufficiently supplied and, and having everything that they needed. And so the mind has a kind of meagerness to it, a stinginess. We have to apply the direct antidote, the spiritual antidote, in order to get any kind of result at all. 
We are all afflicted with hatred, greed, and ignorance. Hatred meaning anger. All of us have anger. We react with anger constantly. If we react with re anger constantly in this life, how much more so must we have reacted with anger in times past? In previous incarnations, if we have lived countless times and the Buddha teaches us that we have, how many times have we reacted with anger? How do we therefore cut hatred? How do we bring about individual and collective peace? How do we start with peace here in your own mind, in our own minds, and then end up with working toward world peace? By applying the antidote. Like that young man with the shield. Whenever someone sends anger toward you, hold up your shield of compassion. Don't return anger for anger. What's the point? It will only perpetuate anger. It will only perpetuate hatred. What is the point? Use your understanding. Use what the Buddha has taught. That anger in that person is obviously a very deep habitual tendency. That they are only reacting compulsively and habitually to factors that they cannot understand. They simply cannot understand. That in fact they do not understand their nature, which is the Buddha nature. They do not understand your nature, which is the Buddha nature. They think of themselves as this collection of habitual tendencies. And their lack of understanding is abysmally huge. It's endless. It's like a dark abyss that they step into every single day. And understanding that, you can react with compassion. Thinking that you understand a little bit better. Maybe not much, but a little bit better. You can think, I know you're suffering. And I know why you seem the way you seem now. And I wish that I could help. Even a little thought like that is a shield that protects you from hatred. It protects you in a deep and uncompromising way. And practiced again and again and again, it will bring about the auspicious result of the spontaneous arising and awakening to the nature of compassion, which is the bodhicitta nature, which is your nature. Ultimately, we will all awaken to that if we practice. But we must apply the antidote. If we have the problem of ignorance, and of course in, this, in, the, in, in, in the case of spiritual thought, ignorance isn't like lack of education in the way that we think of education. It isn't really the... the <clears throat> the idea of being stupid in the sense that we think of stupid as ordinary people. Ignorance in terms of spiritual thought is the lack of awareness of the primordial empty state. And of course we have ignorance. We have ignorance to the degree that sometimes we get reborn as humans and as humans we forget our nature and we react with hatred and greed and ignorance and we continue thinking that this Collective, confusing, compulsive, compulsive continuum that we, that we experience, our own mind streams, that this is somehow us, and that's ignorance. Or we can get reborn as animals, and as animals we are so deeply reactive 
that we have no idea that there is anything but reaction. Animals are deeply reactive. They have no spaciousness within their mind stream. That kind of thing is ignorance. Being involved in cyclic existence without realization is ignorance. There's no spaciousness. There's no awareness of the nature. There is only continuing in the continuum in a habitual way. And so how, how does one counteract that? Of course, by meditation, by contemplation, by study, through considering the teachings in a very deep way, by putting them into practice, through mantra recitation, through visualization, through doing all practices that awaken one to one's primordial wisdom nature. Any practice in that way will lead to the auspicious result of awakening and will be the weapon against ignorance. Unfortunately, we apply a false weapon. We wait for ignorance to subside. We think that as we grow older, we will grow naturally wiser. As we continue through lifetimes, we will naturally evolve. Having had many lifetimes, I can tell you that that is not the case. You've had many lifetimes, and you can tell me that that's not the case. And having grown older, I can also tell you that that is not the case. Some of you look like you could tell me that's not the case, too. It simply isn't. One has to take up the weapons. One has to apply the antidote firmly. And greed. We all have greed. We all have desire. If we did not have desire, we would not be here. Because it is desire that causes us to wish to be an entity, an ego. And it is desire that causes us to take rebirth. We are tripped up by our own desire and it causes us to continue in the continuum. And that being the case, we have to apply the antidote to desire, which is renunciation. Specific antidotes must also be, be applied, not just general practice, general renunciation, general compassion, but specifically we have to watch what we do in our lives. And when we see anger come up, we have to fight it directly through practicing compassion where we might have reacted with anger. When we see our habitual dullness and our lack of awareness of our nature, we have to fight it by taking the posture of practicing in order to achieve enlightenment and seeing enlightenment as the true cessation of suffering and moving toward it in a very affirmative way. When we see desire, specifically different kinds of desire, we have to practice renunciation. We have to understand the lackluster quality of anything that we desire and how short the satisfaction is. We must see it for what it is. doesn't mean that we should be chronically unhappy. But in fact, we should let our minds be peaceful by not being disappointed when we can't have what we want or losing what we want. And on the other hand, not being totally overjoyed when we get what we want. We should just be stable, realizing that we are practicing a true path that leads us to the supreme result of enlightenment, that we are in fact practicing renunciation, that we do 
We're okay. We're, we're in cyclic existence. I like, I like to drink this water. I like what I see. That's nice. But I, I know its qualities. We should think like that. I know that it's impermanent. I know that it's really not a big deal. So I won't get hooked. I'll practice renunciation in a deep way. I won't get hooked. As an ordained person, you practice renunciation in a very strict way. You cut it off. You cut it. As a lay person, perhaps you practice renunciation differently. But you should still practice it in a very true and deep way. See cyclic existence for what it is. Practice that antidote. And don't get hooked. Walk through life kind of like a peaceful warrior. Don't get hooked. It's not a big deal. Just relax. As a layperson, you can practice like that. You can see the heart of the matter. You can walk through everything and see the heart of the matter. And be happy. Because you have. It's the kind of happiness that you can depend on. You know, you can't depend on the temporary kind. And so you prepare for disappointment and you always walk around kind of tense. Like pretty soon you're going to get let down. And you are. You're right. Absolutely right. But if you practice seeing to the core of the matter, seeing cyclic existence for what it is, it's just no big deal. You can remain happy and peaceful in a very stable way. It's different. So applying the direct antidote in every case is the answer. <clears throat> do we have the courage to do that? No. But we have to try. We have to start now. We really don't have the courage to do that. We don't want to look at cyclic existence straight, straight ahead. We don't want to see its lackluster quality. We want to get some temporary satisfaction. It's very hard for us to really see it for what it is. <clears throat> We want to, put, to apply the temporary satisfaction. But that is not the way and it never will be. It only increases suffering. Ultimately, it only increases suffering. So you have to think about yourself and you have to understand that first of all, you probably don't have the courage to really apply the direct antidote all of the time. So be patient with yourself. But try. Start now to really try. Don't be arrogant about it. Don't be haughty about it. Just try. Just start. Begin to practice compassion. Begin to practice true inner fidelity. Begin to practice some clarity about what is and what isn't. Begin to get the big picture. Start being mindful. Apply the antidotes in whatever way that you are capable of. And the more you apply them, the more capable you will become. Your aptitude, your ability will, in, will continue. It will increase. If you're almost completely unable to apply that antidote at the beginning, then start anyway. Pretty soon you'll be better able. You will grow. If you started off being able to do it perfectly, you wouldn't need to start off. Just try. Try now. <clears throat> there's a kind of 
childish and stupid spirituality that seems to be popular. And it's very superficial. It's like an act. It's kind of meaningless and it really brings no good result. You don't want to practice that kind of spirituality. You want to really understand that all things in samsara arise interdependently and they arise <clears throat> from a cause. That cause must be antidoted. You really must understand that your true nature is the Buddha nature. But that doesn't mean you can sit around and act like the Buddha. That doesn't mean you can fake it. That doesn't mean that if you sit still long enough it will just kind of come up on its own. That doesn't mean that you should wait around for the day when it knocks on your door. There's no waiting for the Buddha nature to come forth. It's as forth as it's ever going to be. The problem is we can't see it because we are so fixed, fixated in our hatred, greed, and ignorance. So we have to practice the method of using the antidote so that we can awaken to what is already and always has been established. Take it on in a courageous and affirmative way. Don't be lackadaisical about your practice. Get into it. Really get into it. You don't have to be hard on yourself. You don't have to be mean in any way. Just practice. Just start. And you, then you'll make some progress. And it will be much more deep and profound a method. This podcast has been a production of Kunzang Payul Choling. For more teachings, meditations, and resources, you can visit our online virtual temple at tara.org. That's T-A-R-A dot